technology is one support. I think it's it's an important one, but I think that like um, ultimately it's a, it's a gigantic system that we have to consider for for teachers and, and, and their curriculum development and whether they can integrate technology into the the classroom. As vozes do professor. Teachers' voices. Welcome, welcome to, to the EdTech Podcast, podcast and, and welcome, welcome to Teachers', teachers voices. voices. I am Sophie Bailey and I am Nina Alonso and this is a collaboration between, between both, both of us. us. Sophie is the founder and host of the EdTech Podcast, whose mission is to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. And Nina is the host and co-author of Teachers' Voices, the podcast made from the stories of teachers from around the world talking in their own words. Teachers' Voices is produced in partnership with Bold, the digital platform on learning and development. We have been looking for an opportunity to gather our forces and collaborate on a podcast that talks about how educators use education technology in schools and informal learning settings. Today's episode is about how best can teachers and students use different technology, digital tools and games to teach and learn in collaborative ways. So today we will be talking about what Sophie has learned about collaborative learning using education technology, EdTech for short, along the EdTech podcast journey. Also, we welcome as special guests Jason Jeep, who is now Assistant Professor of Digital Youth at the University of Washington, and Cohen Timmers, a lecturer, author, and founder of several global educational projects. Before we listen to Jason and Cohen, let's hear about how Sophie and I met. Nina, it's brilliant to finally meet in person. We've chatted a lot uh, on Zoom and we've done that and it's great to finally meet in person and uh, get this recording down. I know that you've travelled from Madrid. Yes, I did, and you travelled from That's correct. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to getting this recording underway. Yeah, so exciting. And I, I must say that we both work remotely most of the time and we're extremely aware of the relevance of in-person contact, right? So very exciting to meet Sophie. And actually, Sophie's dedicating great efforts to... Her project. Yeah, no, so um, yeah, because I am a glutton for punishment, I've got the EdTech podcast and I've started a new business called Worktrip. So yeah, you can find out more at worktrip.com and in the show notes, of course. Well, Sophie, now that you're here with me, I'd like to ask you about your experience in your past episodes. You've been producing many, many episodes of EdTech podcast and I'd like to ask you if you could share with us a bit of your experience with regards to collaborative users of EdTech for teachers and students. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a really fascinating area. I'd say that at the very top level in the six years I've been doing the podcast, there's a notable shift from this interest in individualized, personalized learning to realizing that learning is a social activity. And so we've always had really robust thinkers in this area. So many people listening might know the work of Diana Laudrillard at UCL about exactly that social learning and, 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 and that being the driver to good design in ed tech, I suppose. And that, you know, there's only so much you can do in an individualized state, but actually the motivation and the way we learn is, is very interconnected. So that's kind of like the top level. And I think, I think that understanding has been 
accelerated like many things through the pandemic so we've realized where our limits are kind of connecting and interfacing with technology one-on-one and so I'm really hopeful and excited about this sort of new breed of edtech which realizes that social learning underpinning and, and, and uses that as a driver for better access and improved learning outcomes. Sophie, during these past years, you have been talking to many international experts and educational stakeholders who have been discussing with you about varied aspects of edtech and from many different perspectives. What can you highlight from past episodes about collaborative uses of edtech? So um, recently we had the head of education for the British Esports Association. So, yeah, you know, it's a multi-billion pound industry. And in the same way that maybe five years ago, people were talking about the gaming industry more broadly, it's a conduit to learners being able to tap into really transferable sort of soft skills that we know are in demand going forward. So things like communications, finance, leadership skills and what's interesting perhaps for your teacher listeners is that quite often through these alternative methods of teaching through the use of things like esports or you know previously has been a lot done around Minecraft is that it taps into perhaps a learner that would otherwise count themselves out and sit very quietly at the back of a class or be more disengaged so I think that's really exciting and um We had uh, one of the guests on that episode was the curriculum manager for digital at Coventry College. And she said all of those students that are actively taking part in esports at the college tend to do a lot better in their assignments and assessments. So over the period that they engage with the esports curriculum, their assessments as a result did much better. And again, it goes back to that sort of group motivation and that kind of idea. Esports is short for electronic sports. It's a form of competition using video games. Our next guest, Jason Jeep, has done extensive research on engaged learning that can happen using digital technology. Jason joined us from Seattle in the US, and we asked him about his work on co-design and collaboration within EdTech. I'm an associate professor at the University of Washington at the Information School, and part of what I study is families and technology and the collaboration that occurs between uh, units within the family, uh, intergenerational between usually children and their parents. I want to understand new ways of learning, new kinds of collaborations that could occur in the families. Um, And then I also investigate what's going on in the home right now, like what current technologies teach us about collaboration. So I've studied a lot about Pokemon Go, Uh, Animal Crossing, digital games. We've looked a lot at searching technologies, how online searching supports collaboration in families. Much of Jason's research explores how adults partner with children to design new technology for children. I asked Jason to explain about how online co-design works. So I have a group of children that I work with called Kids Team, And in Kids Team, we work with children twice a week after school um, for an entire year, so an entire school year. So it's about 50 or 60 sessions that I co-design with these children. And when I co-design, sometimes I'll build the new technologies. Before COVID occurred, uh, we would come to my lab and we would actually work and partner with children on some of the designs, sometimes learning technologies and sometimes new ideas, or sometimes it's an assessment of what's going on. 
Um, but we would work very closely with the children as design partners. Uh, and in a, when we consider design partners uh, with adults and children, we look at it in terms of this equitable and equal partnership that can occur. It's not always perfect, um, but what we see is that we see a lot of relationship building. We see a lot of design by doing. We see a lot of idea generation and mixing. And we see a lot of like children and adults co-facilitating the sessions in this case. So uh, when COVID hit, it really did, it didn't change the dynamics too much in terms of those relationships that we had built with kids already. But what did change was the medium. Like we wouldn't see children in person anymore. So when we talk about online co-design, we took our lab model and decided to go online for about two years, given the pandemic. And we used all sorts of technologies, but mostly Zoom and mostly Google Slides as a way to communicate with the children. But um, now that COVID is sort of, I, I'm, it's not completely disappeared, but it's changing. Uh, we've gone to a hybrid model where now we are both online and in-person. So our lab is trying to think about the same physical question that a lot of teachers deal with. I was a teacher for six years so before I became a professor. Uh, I was a high school teacher, so I definitely understand the sort of socialization and the movement and physicality of the classroom that feels lost when we go online completely. We've been trying to figure out, well, can we design tools that allow a little bit more physicality when it comes to these interactions? So part of the research that we've been doing uh, with a group of professors at Pratt Institute and the University of Colorado Boulder has been to really understand how little tabletop robots can help us shape in-person interactions. So this is all sort of just pilot, like exploratory work, but we've been trying to figure out whether or not we can use little tiny robots that are just that with wheels and lights and sounds. Thanks to the pandemic, remote teaching has become the new normal for so many Despite its benefits, online learning has presented teachers and families with some challenges, especially around collaboration and physical play. The blending of technology, creative activities and playful interaction is something that Jason has been researching. Here he is again. We've been trying to change a lot of our techniques online to also include physicality, to also include a lot of children's motions and movements, especially given that sitting down on the on the on the chair for an hour, like sometimes we had to say, all right, we're gonna go, like quickly we're gonna do raise our hands instead of using Zoom like voting, we're gonna use like colors, we're gonna use different ways to move around. So it's both it's kind of interesting. It's both the design of new products to help people interact online together through physical means, say the robots, but it's also the methods that we use to design those robots and other things as well that had to also end up being more physical in that sense too, even online. I asked Jason about the role of teachers in trying to engage students in working collaboratively with the support of technology. Part of the things that I really appreciate about teachers Uh, is that when the pandemic happened, a lot of them got very creative, right? Despite the problems with technology, right? So um, there's a lot of there's a lot we study in terms of in human computer interaction about how other cultures outside Western society sort of build their own technologies and build their own kind of ways of learning and build their own kinds of DIY, and they are incredibly resourceful. Um, like if you look at like There have been studies in, in Kenya that look at how 
DIY makers just just come up with brand new ideas that couldn't come from the West because they were sort of like working under pressure in this case. I think it's just more about the creativity of the teachers that I think is going to be ultimately more important than the actual technology because the problem is, is that the infrastructure may not work. Um, but ultimately, I think it's the designer of, you know, of the curriculum, of, of what they do um, that matters more, what they can figure out as well. So I have to give a lot of credit to teachers. And I think really it's going to be about, more importantly, how we train teachers to feel more, to, or not even train, but even give teachers the ability and permission to be creative with the tools that we give them in a sense, right? So I think it's kind of all of that. I, I kind of wish I could say like, yeah, like all the technology, we build it, it's going to be great. But that's not what we find. Actually, we find more, it's, it's more about like whether uh, teachers have the autonomy to be creative with the technologies that they're given at that point. But oftentimes, we don't give teachers enough autonomy. Uh, we don't give them enough chance to be creative with what, what, what resources they have, whether it's a lot or very little in this case. Thanks to Jason Jeep for his insights. What Jason said about the importance of creating good conditions that allow teachers to be creative with technology in education and make the most of their circumstances and resources is something that our next guest knows well about. Education technology might be an exciting prospect for well-resourced schools with good internet infrastructure. But how can it be harnessed in more challenging teaching environments? To find more about this, Sophia and I spoke with Cohen Teamers. Cohen is a former teacher, author, researcher, and public speaker who has lots of experience with digital innovation, climate change education, and has funded several global educational projects. We asked him how he went about establishing the foundations for online teaching in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. So the Kakuma refugee camp is the second largest in Africa. It has about 200,000 refugees and it's uh, people who are being displaced and fled from war and hunger from South Sudan, Burundi, uh, Somalia and different countries basically in Africa. And the refugees in most cases get uh, food and drinks once a day and all, everything is managed by the UN. So uh, it's not by the government from Kenya but by the UN. It's a secure environment uh, in contrast to another big camp in Kenya, which is Dadaab, which is not really that secure as Kakuma. Yeah. Schools have like 200 students in one classroom. Uh, there's big holes in the, in the classroom walls. The teachers are not really trained to teach students. They're just people willing to instruct students, but without decent training. 80% of the, the teachers didn't have any teacher training and uh, 80% of the teachers are refugees themselves. And if I think about refugee camps, I always think about people arriving there, but uh, the camp has been there for like 30 years. And so many people have been born in the camp. So many people don't know the life outside the refugee camp. Cohen described how he started this project when he was a teacher in Belgium and contacted Moses, a refugee from the Kakuma camp. So I was once able to connect with a refugee in the Kakuma uh, camp through Skype and I promised 
Moses, that was his name, to help him to increase the level of education. But I was also quite naive because I thought that the schools would have been equipped with at least one room with uh, laptops and internet connection. But it took me five years to establish a decent internet connection and I sent my own laptop to the camp. And once we were equipped, I started to teach the refugees over there. But after a while, I noticed that I was not able to do it myself because of the the huge uh, volume of students. And many teachers globally wanted to help and started to teach through this infrastructure themselves. And then in 2020, we were able to go to the camp for the very first time to meet all of those people we have been seeing on the screen. And we built our own school and established a formal partnership with the UN. Cohen explained how this impressive progress was made possible in terms of facilities and connectivity, but also the creativity that was needed to make digital learning happen in an environment with quite adverse conditions. So in the first stage, we had just one computer in a room of 200 refugees being connected with the teacher somewhere uh, in the world. And now we, with our own school, uh, we managed to get 100 laptops to this room. And this offers a huge amount of, of new opportunities. When I arrived in the camp, every refugee had one pencil and there was one textbook for every 10 students. But now the refugees are able to use laptops and learn about the world through YouTube. And we even did coding classes. So we had refugees creating uh, small programs and software and apps and websites. So we did a lot throughout the past years. But also teacher training. Teachers have have been able uh, to be trained. We worked with the uh, University of Nairobi. So we were able to do a lot uh, because of the large amount of laptops in the camp. So I really like innovations and I noticed that there are solar suitcases and those are suitcases with solar panels and batteries and they give one classroom free electricity for one day. So they allowed us to charge the laptops. And then we were able to use the internet from the UN But um, yeah, you may think about the internet connection in your own house, in your own uh, living room, but it's very different over there. It's really, really expensive. So uh, broadband internet costs as a cost of thousands of euros a month. So they're also using 4G bundles very often. And sometimes we are using those. So it's really, really tricky even after like seven years, it's still very tricky. Um, but still, we always we find new ways to make it happen, basically. Basic connectivity is really important, but teachers still need to maintain their usual agility in responding to situations at hand, as Cohen Teamers explains. I think because of COVID, everybody knows how it is to learn on a distance through technology. I think it has a lot of value, but one has to make sure that it's being used in a a proper way. So what we found out is that virtual interactions are really powerful, 
but it also is not that easy at all times and so we also shift to other approaches so i think you always have to take a look at the circumstances and then have to decide on the technology you will be using and if it's not really making a lot of sense uh, in certain scenarios to have virtual interactions you have to shift to other pedagogical approaches i think and that is what we have been doing throughout the past months as well so if there's no internet you still want to use the technology uh, to improve the learning curve of the students and there's no internet in the schools for quite a lot of time basically so very frequently there's no internet and then you have to be able to shift to other approaches so making sure that the students are able to get to use uh, the laptop but also we found new technology which is called the Rachel device which makes internet connection accessible offline so that's one small device which has all of the TED talks and Wikipedia and a lot of digital handbooks so it, when there's no virtual interaction and no internet connection we make sure that the students are able to access those uh, Rachel devices and still they are able to learn independently. Finally, Cohen commented on an additional dimension that this project has incorporated, involving students from different parts of the world in exchanging insights with the students in the Kakuma camp, something that has been enriching for all participants. And it's really, really interesting when you involve students in another country so that there is some kind of an intercultural exchange between the students from I don't know, from Belgium, Canada, New Zealand, with the refugees in Kakuma. And interestingly, so I launched this project to make sure that we give free knowledge to the refugees. But something magic happened there. We noticed that the refugees started to, to talk about their own lives to students in other countries. And there was a real strong mutual appreciation after those calls and we noticed that they got a very fair perspective about being a refugee. So this became our best way to fight polarization because all you know about refugees comes from television and, and newspapers. But when you are able to have like a direct connection and a chat with the refugees, that really changes your mindset and grows uh, the, the, the amount of appreciation for other human beings, basically. Sophie now closes this episode with some final reflections and she recommends us an interesting book to guide our critical thinking on technology, on collaborative teaching and learning. So going back to, I suppose, the backbone of, of, of technology in the school and really how to think about critical questions for implementing technology in a way that's relevant for the school as well is um, a past guest was Al Kingsley so Al has um, extensive experience across um, multi-academy trust here in the UK he's also an edtech CEO and very senior within the sort of governance side of things as well and Al wrote a book called uh, My Secret EdTech Diary and this is quite a great place to just yeah, get get back to what the critical questions you should be asking if you're thinking about, yeah, use of technology to achieve some of those collaborative aims and collaborative learning. And 
sometimes that's sort of the boring stuff but ultimately like with anything it's the process that allows the more creative stuff to be achieved and so I think some of that creative stuff is helping to socialize students work and share it and that being a um, having an effect on motivation for learning so using the internet to help share work and connect it with others mm-hmm. that near to peer or peer to peer feedback and learnings um, and one um, shout out to an entrepreneur I met recently at London EdTech Week is Erin Segal it's an Israeli company called Pangea and he's quite cool he's trying to encourage learners to think less passively about Uh, information and develop critical thinking through asking questions of complex text thank you for listening to teachers voices and to the edtech podcast if you've enjoyed this episode you can find more about the teachers featured and all the other guests on bold.expert and on the edtech podcast website which is theedtechpodcast.com where you'll find all of our show notes Please don't forget to follow us and engage with us in conversations, sending your feedback and suggestions by email podcastteachersvoices at gmail.com and uh, theedtechpodcast at gmail.com and on social media. Let's keep on building learning communities while bridging research and practice. practice.